good morning again. Would you bow with me and let's pray together. Father, thank you that your word says that if we humble ourselves before your mighty hand, you will lift us up. You will raise us up. And we thank you, Lord, that when we humble ourselves before you, it is not that we do so in defeat, but we do so recognizing who you are, that you are God. There is no other beside you. There is no, no salvation except that which is found in you. And so we gladly humble ourselves before you and receive your healing. Thank you, Lord, that your word is always ready to speak to us. It is alive and active, and it's ready to speak again this morning. So bless your word. Speak through me, your servant. May the words be yours. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The following story is a true story taken from the news headlines a number of years ago. The news article read of the arrest and trial of a man who had been accused of murdering his family with a knife. Neighbors had heard screaming on the night of the murders, but they had not given it much thought until two weeks later when it was reported that the bodies of the victims had been found in shallow graves in a field outside of town. Well, then the neighbors put two and two together and called the police. So when the police entered the home of the victims over two weeks after the crime, they were shocked to find it in immaculate condition. The bedrooms and the hallways had been repainted. The carpets had been shampooed. The curtains and the drapes had been washed and ironed. The woodwork and furniture had been polished. Every window had been cleaned. Quite simply, it looked like a show home. Now, this alone instantly made the husband a prime suspect. For what man living alone would have his home in such immaculate condition? Without an ulterior motive, right? However, beyond their suspicions, the police lacked hard evidence. And, though he was the prime suspect, what could they do without the evidence to say what he had done? And so, they began to look. Were there fingerprints? No. Were there bloodstains? No. Were there shredded clothing, signs of a struggle anywhere to be found? No. Nothing. The defendant's story was that he and his wife had had an argument and that she had taken the kids and left him. He said he had no idea of where they'd gone or what had happened to them. Understandably, the police doubted the man's story, and so finally they brought in a CSI forensic, forensic team to investigate more thoroughly. And so they sprayed the house down with a chemical known as luminol, a compound that's designed to interact with blood. So when it comes in contact with blood, it gives off a fluorescent color, even through paint. And sure enough, the patterns of blood immediately began to appear throughout the house. Now neither the soap, the polish, nor the fresh paint were able to prevent the police from seeing the blood. Now, when CSI investigators examine a crime scene, they are usually looking for evidence that isn't readily seen. It takes a little bit more digging. Evidence that, once found, can be used later on to bring about a verdict in the court of law. And as happened in the story, the husband was, of course, found guilty and convicted of the crime of murdering his family and was sentenced to life in prison. See, this is the way it works in the world. Evidence, once found, demands a verdict. And this morning, we are a week removed from Easter Sunday. And so now as we look back, we realize that though most of us in church today are convinced that Jesus did rise from the dead, that he is alive today, we have to realize that we are in the minority 
of people in our nation today. We take it for granted. Of course Jesus is alive. Of course that's why we're gathered here on Sunday morning. And yet we are the smallest percentage of people in this nation. If you were to take a quick poll of Canadians today, most would say, no, I'm not convinced that Jesus is alive. I'm not convinced of the resurrection. In fact, many would flat out say, no, it never happened. It was a hoax. I don't believe it. Now, there are many reasons for this skepticism or lack of belief today. For just like the fresh coat of paint and soap that the husband did to try to hide his crime, the Pharisees' initial cover-up for Jesus' resurrection was much the same. They cooked up a story that Jesus' disciples had somehow made it past a Roman legion of soldiers that they had somehow stolen the body and taken it away. And that deception at that time deceived many, and it continues to deceive many today. Many more people question the reliability of the eyewitnesses themselves and their testimony. But I would say that the most obvious reason that so many people, our fellow Canadians today, don't believe in Jesus' resurrection is quite simple, really. People don't just come back to life. Has anyone here seen anyone come back to life before? Anyone? Okay, hands aren't shooting up all over the place, and this tells us this is extremely unusual. In fact, some would say it's impossible, and therefore they are not convinced that this can happen. And make no mistake about it, someone coming back to life from death is a fantastic claim. It's a claim that is therefore difficult to believe, and it is a claim, because it seems so impossible, that needs a whole lot of evidence to back it up, if we are to believe that it is actually true. However, I will say that it's not just difficult for skeptics to believe in the resurrection. Even Jesus' own disciples found it difficult, in fact, almost impossible to believe that Jesus had, in fact, been raised from the dead. And so God, knowing then that they, as well as us today, would need compelling evidence to be convinced that the resurrection was not a hoax, it was not a nice story, it was reality, he provided us with that evidence evidence and in abundance no less but just like with the csi investigation team much of the evidence is not readily seen and so we need to take a little bit closer look at the word to see the blood of the lamb and allow the weight of the evidence to speak for itself so i want you now to turn with me to luke chapter 24 the story read for us earlier the account of the two followers of jesus traveling from jerusalem down the road to a little town known as Emmaus. Now there in Luke chapter 24 and verses 13 and 14, we read this as the opening to the story. Now that same day, referring to the day of the resurrection, Easter Sunday, now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. Now, you need to remember, all of the events are painstakingly fresh in their minds. It is Easter Sunday. They were there when these events transpired. They are now walking down the dusty road, and they are talking about trying to process everything that's happened as they're going along the way. Now, as to the identity of these two travelers, we know that they were not of the 11 disciples of Jesus' inner circle, but they were of the larger group group of those disciples that followed Jesus, for in verse 18, the name of one of the travelers is given as Cleopas. Now, Cleopas is named, however, his traveling companion is unnamed. 
the second name is not given. And this has given cause to some speculation as to his or perhaps her identity. Now we look at some clues to see if we can find or determine the identity of the second traveler. If we move over to the scene of the women at the foot of Jesus' cross in John chapter 19 and verse 25, we read this. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now take note in this list of women that one of the woman's identity is given as Mary, the wife of Clopas. This is the explanation given by biblical scholar James Boyce. He writes, It is true that John spells the name a bit differently, but the spelling of names often varied in antiquity, and here the two names undoubtedly refer to the same person. Thus we learn that the wife of Cleopas was also present in Jerusalem at the time of the crucifixion, and we may therefore safely assume that she was the one returning to Emmaus with her husband on the morning of the resurrection. Now, you might be wondering, what does the second person's identity matter? It could have been Cleopas' wife. It could have been some other unnamed disciple. What does it matter? Well, I find it very interesting as to who Jesus considered his first priority to reveal himself to following his resurrection. And it would have seemed to me that if I were to pick the priority of the people who would be honored that he would reveal himself to first, the 11 disciples would be at the top of that list. Wouldn't you think so? They were the ones who had been following him most closely all of this time. But here we see that Jesus' first priority was not the 11, but to others. Not the 11 disciples who abandoned him. Remember, they fled in his darkest hour. But instead, Jesus chooses that the first he is going to reveal himself to are the faithful women who had stayed by his side even while he hung on the cross. For we know it was the other women who had first seen him outside the tomb, Mary Magdalene, of course. And now, before revealing himself to the other eleven, hiding away for fear of the Jews, Jesus reveals himself, we know for certain, to Cleopas and, quite likely, his wife Mary who had been present at the cross as he died that day. What I love about this small detail is that it shows for us that while the two travelers may be nobodies to us, their identities are secondary in importance. In fact, it doesn't actually matter if it was Cleopas' wife with him that day or not because the message of the story remains the same. But I love these little clues because it shows us that while these side characters Their identities don't matter to us. They may be nobodies. They were somebodies to Jesus. These were friends of him, friends of Jesus. They mattered to him. And so from our perspective, these are two unimportant people in the divine narrative. Their names are barely worth mentioning or remembering. But from Jesus' perspective, Cleopas and Mary, his wife, were so important that he spent an entire day with them before revealing himself to the eleven. Now, you may be here identifying with Cleopas and his wife in some small way. Perhaps you feel so insignificant that barely anyone knows your name or would care to remember it. But I want you to be encouraged from this text that Jesus knows your name. Jesus has time for you because you are important to him. 
Now, if we return to Luke 24 and then ahead to verses 15 and 16, we read, As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? Now, as we listen in on their following conversation, we find they have already heard all of the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. For example, they know it's the third day since his crucifixion, implying that they remember Jesus' prophecy that he would rise again after three days. They also know that Mary Magdalene and the other women had found the tomb empty. They know that angels appeared telling them that he is alive, and they know that the other disciples confirmed the woman's story that the tomb was, in fact, empty. And so they have all of the evidence. They've heard the testimony. They know about the angels. They've heard it all that very day, but get this, they're not convinced. How do we know they're not convinced? Well, let's keep going. Verse 17, he asked them, why are you discuss, or what are you discussing together as you walk along? And I want you to look at their response. They stood still, their faces downcast. Very important detail. Why would their faces be downcast if they believed Jesus was alive? They wouldn't. They're downcast because they, they've added it all up and they don't believe. They're not convinced. They're not persuaded. And so downcast, they're trudging on the weary road home. It's all over. Jesus is dead. The story hasn't changed their minds. Verses 20 and 21. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him. And listen to what, how they phrase this next part. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. I want you to notice the past tense. The grammar uh, scholars in the room, the teachers will know that this is important. Tense is important. We had hoped. Not we are hoping. This is in the past. We had hoped. Their hope was not for the present. For in spite of what they had heard, to them Jesus was still dead. And remember that Cleopas' wife Mary had witnessed Jesus' death with her own eyes. She had been there at the cross that day. And in her heart and mind, hope was past. We had hoped, but our hope is now dead. And that's where the story changes. And I love this next part of the story because the focus shifts from these downcast, unconvinced, hopeless disciples to Jesus. The risen, victorious Messiah standing right in front of their noses, no less, completely unrecognized. I just love this part, Jesus going incognito. And I love the fact that Jesus first plays as though he doesn't know anything that has happened. He pretends as though he's just some random traveler who just happened upon the scene, doesn't know what happened in Jerusalem, and he plays dumb. And in doing so, he coaxes them into putting their disbelief to voice. Then having listened to their story, he finally replies in verses 25 and 26 with this. How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter glory? Now here, after Jesus' rebuke, right, he's, he's playing as though he doesn't know anything, and then all of a sudden he comes out with this strong rebuke. How foolish you are, don't you know the scriptures? Don't you know that they all said this was it going to happen exactly to a T? And after doing this, I would expect that Jesus, just to save some time, would have said, ta-da, 
It's me. I'm right in front of you. Look, the nail scars. Look at the, the swords piercing my side. It's me. And they would have been persuaded and believe. You know, perhaps he would have said like he did with Thomas. Here, put your, put your hands in the nail scars. Be convinced it is me, O ye of little faith. But Jesus doesn't do that here. Instead, he allows them to remain oblivious to his true identity. In fact, in verse 16, Luke gives us this important detail. It wasn't that Jesus had put on a disguise or that somehow we don't know exactly in his resurrected form how much his appearance had been altered. But it says here that they were kept from recognizing him. For some reason, Jesus deliberately has his identity hidden from them from a a sort of blindness. They were kept from recognizing him. And then rather than taking the shortcut of opening their eyes by just simply revealing himself to them to convince them, Jesus takes the lengthy approach, much more similar to that of a seminary professor teaching an impromptu course on Old Testament Christology 101. And and here he, he starts lecturing them on the Old Testament Scriptures. We read this in verse 27. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, if this is actually true, what Luke is saying, that he got into every single prophecy concerning himself in the Old Testament, this would have taken much more than a half-hour sermon to get through. Trust me. (laughs) Many, many hours would have been required to get through all of the prophecies, even to just touch on them briefly, every single one as they walked and talked. Now, we know it was a seven-mile journey, and so walking at approximately, let's say, average speed, three and a half miles an hour, while you can do the math, they had a fair bit of time to work with that day. Now, because I am limited to the time restraints of a sermon, we won't be able to touch on all 48 of the major messianic prophecies or the 333 specific details which were all perfectly fulfilled in the one man, Jesus Christ. But let me just give you a few of the headliners of Old Testament prophecy concerning the Christ. He'd be of the line and lineage of David. He would be of the tribe of Judah, born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin. He would spend time in Egypt. He would teach in parables. He would open the eyes of the blind. He would perform signs and wonders. He would be called a Nazarene. He would ride a donkey colt into Jerusalem. He would be rejected by his own people. He would be betrayed by a close follower. The proceeds of that betrayal would be used to buy a potter's field. He would be familiar with suffering. He would be falsely accused. He would be silent before those accusers. He would be flogged. He would be crucified. He would die with criminals. He would be pierced. Not one bone, of his bo- one bone of his body would be broken. He would be buried with the rich, and he would rise again on the third day and ascend to heaven. These are just the headliners, my friends. I could go on and on. But remember, all of these things that we're so familiar with, all of these details were written centuries before Jesus' birth. A mathematician once attempted to calculate the odds of one man accidentally fulfilling all 48 major prophecies, and the number is staggering, to say the least. To give a little perspective, this week I heard on good old uh, CBC radio 
A little story of a lady in Alberta who just a little while back hit two holes in one, golfing of course, she hit two holes in one in the same round on back-to-back par threes. Now, they say for an, uh, an average Joe golfer, like a 20 handicap or something like that, the odds of hitting a hole-in-one is about 1 in 17,000. So the theory being that if you stood at a 150-yard par 3, average Joe golfer would have to hit the ball 17,000 times before they'd get a hole-in-one. Okay, so these are very long odds. But then the odds given of hitting two holes-in-one in the same round on back-to-back par 3s They figured the odds out of this happening to be 1 in 156 million tries. Anyone here want to take the time to hit a golf ball 156 million times in a row? (laughs) No, I don't want to do that. I don't think anyone wants to do that. I don't think it's possible if you had multiple lifetimes to attempt it. These sound like long odds, right? But now listen to the numbers mathematicians give regarding Jesus fulfilling multiple specific ancient prophecies. This is what the mathematicians have figured out. One person fulfilling only eight of the major prophecies concerning the Messiah is one in a quintillion. So if you don't know what the number quintillion is, it's a big name that they made up for a number that has a one followed by 17 zeros. It's a lot of zeros. You can try to pull it up on your calculator if you want. It'll fill your screen to get a 1 followed by 17 zeros. That's only 1 in 8. Now, for one person to fulfill all 48 prophecies, there is no name for the number because it's simply too big. Mathematicians would list it simply as 1 chance in 10 to the 157th power. So we've got so many zeros that we're filling pages and pages and pages of how long the odds are of one person doing this. And so now if we want to take it further, the person fulfilling 333 specific prophecies, well, let's just say there is no name or number big enough in the entire world. The odds are so long. Think of it like this. If someone takes a diamond ring up in a jetliner, and then somewhere over one of the Earth's vast oceans... He throws it out into the water, and then years later, without even being told which body of all 197,000 square miles of the world's oceans the ring was thrown into, he tells you, now go find it. How long is that going to take you to scour the bottom of the Earth's oceans, 197,000? Well, there's only one word that comes to mind. Impossible. It is simply not possible. Even still, your odds of finding that diamond ring are still better than by mere chance and time one man fulfilling every ancient messianic prophecy. And yet, the testimony holds true that Jesus fulfilled all 333 prophecies perfectly, fulfilled them to the letter. So in other words, throughout the whole Old Testament, we're repeatedly told that not only a Messiah is coming, but a wide variety of specific descriptions that could be used to identify him. It is a pile of evidence that is so vast, so high, that even the most skeptical investigator to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus could only come to one verdict. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that he is alive. This was the evidence that the two disciples on the road to Emmaus knew 
but failed to understand. For just knowing the evidence wasn't enough for them. They still needed a personal encounter with the resurrected and living Jesus to finally have their eyes opened and believe. Watch what happens next. Verses 28 to 35, we see that they arrive at Emmaus. Jesus again acts like he's going to keep going, but they insist, of course, that he stays with them, and so he does. Then in verse 30, we read, When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. Then they asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? My friends, as we too give witness to our unbelieving friends of the resurrected Jesus, remember first that like Jesus, our authority is based upon God's word. So we always have to start with God's word and seek to explain the evidence in a way that the person can understand. Secondly, remember that the evidence alone is not enough to persuade someone. Evidence can help, yes. Evidence is important, and that's why we begin there. But remember, we need something more. Each individual needs their own encounter with Jesus Christ in a personal way through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's where the burning hearts come into play as the Spirit brings conviction. So as you share the word, as you proclaim the word, as you live the word, always be praying that the Holy Spirit will bring about that burning conviction in the heart of the listener. Then finally, in verse 31, we see that Jesus breaks the bread, and then finally their eyes are opened, and they recognize him, and they believe. And then, poof, Jesus vanishes. Can you imagine that? This whole sequence of events, and then all of a sudden, he's just gone. Talk about an exclamation point on their belief. They finally recognize Jesus is there, he is alive, and poof, he's gone. How do you process this? Well, they were excited, to say the least. And we see that this news was too good to sleep on, because verse 33 tells us they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. Remember, this is a seven-mile journey. They're tired it's a long walk. Has anyone here walked seven miles recently? It's a long haul. Your feet are going to be sore and tired. Do they go to bed that night and say, we're going to get a, a good start early in the morning after a good night's rest? Nuh-uh. This news was too good to sleep on. They are pumped. They get up and likely well into the night. It's dark. Probably dangerous to be traveling at that time of night. They hoof it right back to Jerusalem to share the good news with the other disciples Jesus is alive. We have seen him. Everything changed when they believed that Jesus was alive. This, my friends, is the power of the resurrection. When the word of God and the truth sinks in and it burns within our hearts, and we, like them, believe that it is true that Jesus is alive, it can't help but put our feet into action in order to tell others. There's a story told from many years ago in the old city of Dusseldorf, Prussia. There dwelt an artist by the name of Steinberg. Though religious, he knew nothing of Christ as his own personal savior from the guilt and power of sin. He had been hired to paint a large picture of the crucifixion, 
And this he was doing not from any real love for Christ or faith in him, but simply for money and for fame. One spring morning, Steinberg was seeking recreation in the forest near Dusseldorf when he came upon a poor gypsy girl named Pepita plating straw baskets. Steinberg was so impressed by her striking beauty that he decided to hire her as a model for a picture that he was doing of a Spanish dancing girl, and he arranged for her to come three times a week to his studio to pose for the portrait. She arrived on time, and as her large eyes roved around the studio looking at the paintings, she was full of wonder at the beauty there. Then the large one of Jesus' crucifixion in the center of the room caught her eye. Gazing at it intently, she asked in awe, pointing to the figure in the center, Who is that? The Christ, answered Steinberg carelessly. What is being done to him? They are crucifying him. Who are those around him with the bad, ugly faces? Why did they crucify him? Was he a very bad man? No, he was a very good man. Now look here, said the artist. I can't keep talking to you. I need to work. I can't talk and work at the same time. Please be quiet and stand as I tell you. And so the girl closed her mouth and dared not ask another question. But she continued to gaze at the picture with awe and wonder. At last, seeing she was so anxious to know the meaning of the picture, one day Steinberg finally said, Listen, I will tell you once for all the story. Then you will ask me no more questions. So he told her the story of the cross with a callous speed to get, over, to get it over with. But in hearing the story, even from someone who told it uncaringly, carelessly, in hearing it for the first time, it wrung the little girl's heart. Tears filled her eyes, and she could hardly contain her emotions. Finally, turning to the picture, she said, You must love him so very much, since he has done all of that for you. Do you not? Steinberg couldn't answer. Her words pierced his heart like an arrow. He could not forget them. He has done all that for you, rang in his ears morning, noon, and night. He became restless and sad, depressed and despondent. He knew deep down that he did not love the crucified one. And mere religion gave him no rest. His troubled heart bothered him day and night. Sometime later, Steinberg was led to follow a few poor people who had gathered in a secluded place to hear the Bible read and the gospel preached. Tagging along in the background there for the first time, he met those who had a living faith. And he heard the simple gospel that day. He was made to realize why Christ hung upon the cross for sinners. That he was a sinner. And therefore Christ was there for him bearing his sins in his place. Thus God led the artist to repent of his sins and trust Jesus for personal salvation. Now Steinberg, having received and personalized this good news for himself, longed to make that wondrous love known to others. But how could he do it? Suddenly it flashed upon him, he could paint. His brush could spell out the love of Christ. And so praying for God's help in the work, he painted as he had never painted before. And finally the picture was placed among other paintings in the famous gallery of Dusseldorf. Underneath the painting of the cross, Jesus hanging upon it, his grief and his agony on display for all to see, he placed these words, All this I did for thee. What hast thou done for me? Sometime later, Steinberg, Steinberg, when visiting the gallery, 
spied a poorly dressed girl looking up at the picture. She was weeping bitterly. In a moment, he walked to her side and recognized that it was Pepita, the girl that he had used as a model for many years earlier. Oh, master, she cried, if he had but loved me so. Oh, but he does, was his reply. You see, he died for poor peasant girls just as much as he died for the rich and for the great. And this time, with great feeling, Steinberg presented Pepita with the gospel. She received it and left rejoicing in Christ's love that day. And thus, the Lord used the girl's words to bring the artist to himself. And then used the artist's words to bring the girl to himself. Such is the power of our living Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For the same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work within us. To burn in our hearts, to open our eyes, and to change the very course of our lives. That as we too walk along the way, we can explain to others that yes, Jesus is alive. For he burns in my heart, he is alive in me, It has changed the very course of my life, and it can change yours today and for eternity. And so may we follow the example of Jesus this day. May we take the extra time to walk with people along the road and explain to them exactly what God has done. Show them the evidence, and then pray and trust that the Holy Spirit will burn in their heart, that they too can have their eyes open. And come to believe, just as we do, that Jesus is alive. It's not just a nice story we tell ourselves at Easter to make ourselves feel better when we go to a graveside. No, Jesus is alive. I am persuaded. I am convinced. I am telling you, and I pray that you are convinced and you are persuaded, and that that same Holy Spirit that burned in the heart of those two along the way as Jesus spoke to them the gospel... I pray that it burns in you, and I pray that through us it may burn in the hearts of others who have not yet been persuaded to put their faith in Jesus Christ for the glory of God, for the salvation of many. May it be done according to God's will. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that that day you were so interested in those two disciples of yours, those who we know nothing about them, and yet they were friends of yours. You cared about them deeply enough to take that time to explain to them the scriptures, that everything pointed to you. It is an utter impossibility that anyone else could have fulfilled them so perfectly, and yet you did. The odds alone are staggering, and yet you are the truth. You embody it all. The word is you. You are the word. The one who took on flesh And we have seen your glory, the glory of the one and only, sent from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is you. You are not just a theory. You are a person. And you live in me. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that your word burns in my heart. And I pray, Lord, that the hearers of this word, it will burn in theirs, and that they will go out, and their feet will move in such a way that they will tell others that you are alive, that you are real, and that they can know you in a personal way as well. And so bless your word as it goes forth, Lord, and may you add to our number those who are being saved according to your will. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.